0: Let's open uh, let's with prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we just uh, thank you for this opportunity to come together to study your word, to, to learn about the life of Jesus, and uh, you know, just as we uh, have a, have an insight into his interaction with people, the, the teaching that uh, that he proclaimed, uh, God, I just pray that you would give us uh, a deeper understanding, a uh, deeper love a deeper commitment to obey. And, God, that we would be um, truly the the uh, the people uh, that you have called us to be, followers of Jesus, uh, members of the kingdom. And, uh, God, just that you would bless this time um, as we consider these things and uh, that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it would be kind of nice if we... Uh, we were at the triumphal entry uh, this morning, but it didn't work out that way calendar-wise. So um, where we left off uh, last time in going through the life of Jesus, um, we saw that he had um, begun his ministry in, um, in Galilee and was teaching, was healing people. He was beginning to draw crowds. There was just uh, a lot of commotion about Jesus, and, um, and he was beginning to, to draw some, um, some controversy, some hostility from uh, some of the religious leaders. Um, but as we continue, um, we're basically just going to look at uh, some of the, the principal teaching and, and uh, other acts that happened. During Jesus' Galilean ministry, Uh, a lot of this is going to be on the the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is one of the things that happened there. But just to begin, um, somewhere in this period of time, uh, Jesus chose his 12 apostles. Um, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. Uh, and, and, and all night he continued in prayer to God and when he, when the day came, he called his disciples and chose them uh, chose from them twelve whom he named apostles and Mark chapter three uh, 14 through fifteen says, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so we see that Jesus then is selecting these particular uh, twelve men to uh, to have the authority to go out and to teach in His name, and the authority to cast out demons as well. So He is granting them miraculous power as well as He is His rep- uh, he, as they are His representatives. Um, and the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's it's hard to place exactly when this happened Uh, both Matthew and Luke either record the same event or record very similar sermons um but somewhere in this period when he is in Galilee he uh, he preaches at least one uh fairly fairly lengthy sermon um we're not going to do it justice by any means, but we're going to spend a little bit of time hitting some of the highlights, so, I mean, you could go, you know, months and months and months on the Sermon on the Mount alone, so, um, this is going to be definitely a very quick overview of it, but it is located in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and then also in Luke chapter 7, uh, chapter 6, verses 17 through 49, um. And the theme of it is the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about there. Um, and it, it basically divides into three pieces. You have the, the blessedness of the citizens of the kingdom. You have the righteousness of the kingdom. And you have the exhortation to enter the kingdom. So just beginning at the, at the very beginning and the blessedness that people, I'm sure, are very familiar with, the Beatitudes... For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus opens up with basically a pronouncement of blessing on uh, the people of the kingdom. Um, And then he goes into a discussion of the righteousness of the kingdom. Um, and there's all sorts of things we can talk about here. So just to begin with, uh, beginning in verse 17 of Matthew, and we're just going to stick with Matthew. He has the, the fuller account of this. Uh, but Matthew, beginning in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So to begin asking some questions now, um, how does Jesus view the law of God? That's a hotly debated topic, uh, you know, it's like, how, the, how does the New Testament view the law of God? Um, but just looking at, at what Jesus says here, how does he view the law of God?
1: Well, well first off, it's, he, he's come to fulfill the law. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's... Uh, it, it's it's the law. The, the importance of the law. The importance of keeping the law. Mm-hmm. And he stresses whoever, uh, uh, sorry, whoever relaxes one of these these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Stressing that no, the law is still important even mm-hmm. though it is being fulfilled. Yeah,
0: yeah. So he definitely has a very high view of the law. Um, He's uh, telling people that you know, they should obey the law. The law is important. Um, there is also uh, the fact that he has come to fulfill the law. Um, but he certainly doesn't seem to be like setting aside the law, does he? In fact, he specifically says it's not what he's doing, right? Um, interestingly, he goes on to um, make a number of statements that all begin basically the same way. And we'll just look at the first one just as, a, as an example, beginning in verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said in, uh, uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Uh, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the, uh, to the hell of fire. So Jesus here is presenting, you've heard that it was said to people of old, this, but I'm saying this to you. So he's, he's providing a contrast um, what what is that contrast? It, does Jesus view himself as a new lawgiver, uh, replacing the law of Moses with the law of Christ? No. Yeah, that's and that's that's a teaching that you know you will encounter today. Uh, there are people who will say, "Oh yeah, that's what's going on here is that it's the law of Moses is being set aside and we're being given the law of Christ." Um, so. Um, if that's not what he's doing, then what's he what's he what's he doing? What's the contrast he's setting up? If he's not contrasting his new law with the law of Moses, what's what's the contrast? It's the it's the attitude behind it mm-hmm. rather than the action itself. Okay, yeah, that's true. There's there's definitely the idea of like what's what's the attitude behind the law um, as opposed to just the the outward observance. Why is that
1: important? What's the... If if you desire or are sinning in your heart, that sin is there whether or not you're throwing it to others. Right. So why is he saying,
0: well, you've heard that it was said, do this? This all ties back to verse 20 Mm -hmm. where he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds out of the scribes and Pharisees will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he's he's sort of saying, you know, this is what's been taught to you is what the law means, but this is really what the law means. Right. And so it's not just the uh, external actions that you do, but it even, you know, gets to the very heart motives and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees had, had a much more external view of the law, didn't they? Where they... Uh, we're basically saying, oh well, as as long as you know, as long as I'm uh, you know, not murdering, it doesn't matter you know how I feel about my brother. Um, as long as I'm not committing adultery, it doesn't matter what's going on inside my mind. Um, well, I'm obeying the law of Moses. Uh, but Jesus is saying, no, these these things that that these people are teaching you, these traditions uh, that the scribes and Pharisees have established they're not correct. And he's saying the actual law of God is intended, you know, was intended when, when God gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai, it was intended to go to the heart, to the attitudes, to the, to the inner thought life. Um, so that's a, that's a very important understanding. Um, and I, and I, I suppose I just kind of like to harp on this because I have encountered this, this teaching with people I've talked to, but, um, if, this is the, if, uh, if, we, if we try to look at the perspective that says that Jesus is abolishing the law of Moses and replacing it with the law of Christ, um, what would that mean uh, would have to be true of the law of Moses? If this, is, if this is Jesus basically saying, okay, this was the law of Moses, I'm setting up this new law, what would have to be true of the law of Moses? How would we have to interpret the law of Moses?
2: Incorrect.
0: What's that? Incorrect. Incorrect. Yeah, probably so. Not at least not not fully correct because Jesus is coming along and correcting it. So that would definitely be a problem, wouldn't it? What about beyond that? That's yeah, not sufficient. It's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'm getting at though is that it would have to mean that the law of Moses was intended to only be external. That it was intended to say, yeah, it's it's okay. Um, if you hate people, just as long as you don't murder. And that Jesus is coming and basically setting up a better law. Um, and I think that a lot of times people, they don't, they don't think about those consequences when they set up this system where Jesus is setting up a new law. Um, but it basically would mean that it was perfectly okay for people before Jesus came, you know, pick any one of these where Jesus says, but I say to you... And the but I say to you would have been okay prior to Jesus coming. And I I think most of them, most people, if if you put it that way to them, they would have to say, no, I don't think it would have been okay prior to Jesus coming for that to be the case. So it makes much more sense to interpret this as Jesus is simply correcting uh, the misunderstanding and the misapplication of the law of God that was prevalent in his day and saying basically... No, this is what it means. And we see over and over again in the New Testament, people astonished at Jesus' authority in the way he teaches, that he he teaches them as one who has authority. And really, I think the way we need to understand that authority is Jesus is saying, this is what I meant when I gave you the law. I mean, you know, Jesus is God, so he is the one that provided the law uh, on Mount Sinai. And he's basically saying... Authoritatively, as the lawgiver, I'm giving you the proper interpretation of it.
3: I think it's uh, people that uh, make the distinction between that Christ is, uh, the Jesus is giving a new law. It comes from a dispensational view. And they they separate. They have always had this mm-hmm. tendency towards making distinctions and separations. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: That's that's certainly one of the perspectives to do it. I, I I don't know if you've ever encountered New Covenant theology, but that's that's kind of where my uh, my primary interaction with this has been is the people who hold to New Covenant theology, which is a it's an interesting kind of attempt to be a halfway house between dispensationalism and covenant theology. Um, but it's actually like one of their fundamental tenets is reading the Sermon on the Mount this way. Um, but yeah, and there, and I know there are some other perspectives. Uh, interestingly, the Church of Christ had a very similar view uh, where they basically wanted to replace the entire Old Testament with... The new testament law of christ so there are various perspectives to do it but yeah, dispensationalism at least some forms of dispensationalism can can go into that so uh, but it's definitely not the biblical understanding um i think of the Sermon on the mount continuing on here uh, matthew chapter six look at the first four verses here um, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you so what are the the two contrasting attitudes that are presented here you got people who are practicing righteousness on either side here
1: Again, it comes back to the attitude behind it. It comes back to the motivation of Mm -hmm. why you're doing it. Are you doing it because it's right? Because you're commanded to? Are you doing it so that people see you doing it? Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very much a a an attitude of you know. It's like, am I just doing it just so that people will look at me and say, Wow, look at him. He's just really uh, you know a very godly person. Or am I doing it because this is what God has commanded me to do, and I want to be pleasing to God? Um, and it's, you know, it, if, you can, if you could observe somebody's whole life, you could see, you know, which of, the, which of them they're really doing. Uh, obviously, if you're doing it just to be seen by men, then you, can, you try to hide the fact that you um, are not doing it um, when nobody's looking. But um, why, uh, why do you think that Jesus says to beware of practicing your righteousness before other people? Well, it's easy to do it for the praise of other people. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Even for Christians, right? It's just so easy to just get that, like, I want to be viewed as being holy, as being a person who obeys God. And it's just so easy to to slip into doing that. Um, So, yeah, I think we always have to be, like, really question ourselves and considering what are our motives? Are we being obedient because that's what god has called us to do or is it just so that people will look at us and say wow what a great christian um and that's a really hard thing to do so we have to I think we have to be aware <clears throat> um then uh, we have the lord's prayer uh, obviously well-known uh section here memorized by uh, a large number of christians um, just to look briefly here Matthew 6 verse 7 Jesus says and when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do uh, for they think that they will be heard for their many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask uh, before you ask it. so there that's a statement there that Jesus prefaces his example prayer uh, with that statement um, so how would you uh, how would you describe these two attitudes? Jesus saying, "Do this, don't do this."
1: Oh, I mean, it, it's the attitude behind, "Well, my prayer will be more acceptable if I use big words and fancy language rather than just coming and burning my soul."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, they think that their fancy words are going to be pleasing to God. And so he'll answer because of that. Um, but Jesus says, God knows what you need before you ask. You don't have to try to, you know, be persuasive. Um, so, I mean, this does raise the question. And we'll just talk about it briefly, but why do we pray at all? If God already knows what we need. Because we are commanded to. Okay, yeah, that's a that is a very simple and very correct answer. We're commanded to pray. Can we go beyond
2: that?
1: It is a part of worship. It is a part of uh, uh-huh. of communing and communicating with God. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's a it's a part of worship. It's a part of just building that relationship with Jesus, uh, just pouring our pouring out our hearts to Him. Um, so, I mean, it's a it's a very good thing, but we need to keep in mind that it's like we're not we're not letting God know things that He doesn't know, uh, and we don't have to worry about uh, just trying to have all the right words and saying, oh, oh my God, I should have asked a little differently. Um, God knows exactly what you need, um, and your your prayers just don't they don't have to be perfect. Um, Continuing on with another uh, part of the sermon here, Uh, beginning in verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, so pretty pretty straightforward statement. Why does why does Jesus mention the heart here? I mean, he's telling us where we should be laying up our treasures, and then he says, "For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also."
1: If your desires with the things you have collected, with the riches you've collected. Um, you're not thinking towards heaven, towards glory. You're thinking very earthly-minded mm-hmm. and self-centered and simply. Mm-hmm. So it's where your focus is, is where your priorities truly are. Yeah, yeah. where your focus is, that's where your priorities. Does this...
0: Uh Sounds at all like one of the Ten Commandments? Maybe commandment number one? She'll have no other gods before me. I mean, it's basically it's idolatry. It's, I mean, it's, I think that's essentially what Jesus is saying. It's like, if your treasure is with your possessions on earth, then that's really what you're going to be worshipping. Um, And we are not to have other gods before the living and true God. So, um, we should not be concerned about storing up treasures on earth, because that that just means we're worshipping them instead of God. Uh, Verse 25, uh, another well-known section here, Uh, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air; they neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, uh, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more? Uh, are, are you not of more value than they? And He continues with further uh, illustrations there, but uh, it's all to the same point. So. He's telling he's telling people, you know, don't don't be anxious. So why is it sinful to be anxious? What's what's wrong with that? And I mean, Jesus's illustration brings this out. It shows a distrust. Uh huh. It's a mistrust of God, right? Like God's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. Um, I mean, he provides for. For birds, he provides for for flowers. Do um, you think he cares less about you than he does about those things? Um, and if you are anxious, then that's basically what you're saying: is I, yeah, I think God takes better care of birds than he does of me. Um, so we need to trust God's uh, goodness toward us and His promises toward us. Um, not that that's necessarily easy to do, but. Uh, that, is the, that is the righteousness we are called to. Um, over in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, uh, Judge not that, ye, that you be not judged, uh, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, uh, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do nothing? Uh, but, or, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye uh, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is an oft-quoted passage, um, often without really properly considering the context and all that the Bible teaches. But um, is Jesus telling us that we should never judge anyone? No. No. So, if that's the case, what what attitude is Jesus warning about? If he's if he's not just saying don't ever judge anybody, what is he saying?
2: Yes. Don't be a hypocrite.
0: Don't be a hypocrite. That's exactly right. Um, the idea there is that you're you're putting on a mask. You're pretending that you're righteous, and you're just going to point out everybody else's problem. And, you know, you're not really thinking about holiness properly. You're just thinking about, you know, how you can condemn everybody else. Um, And if you're really concerned about holiness, which, you know, ostensibly you're concerned about holiness if you're pointing out somebody else's sin. Um, If you really are concerned about holiness, you're going to be concerned about your own holiness. That's actually going to be your primary concern for holiness is that... You know, I mean, I, I know this, this is the universal Christian experience. All of us know the sinfulness of our own heart, only to a small degree, but we know it better than, than everybody else that's just looking at the externals. And we all know that, that we're not really holy. There's just so much wickedness that's still in all of us. And um, if we're addressing sin in somebody else, we really need... And really will be looking at our own selves and saying, "I'm not righteous either," um, and it's going to make us much more, uh, much more gentle, much more long-suffering uh, as we attempt to help other people deal with their sin. And it's going to be out of a concern that all of God's people be uh, be holy and not just condemning other people. So. That's the proper the proper attitude and the proper way to understand this passage. Um, it is often taken out of context and just says, "Well, you just you're just not supposed to judge," um, and that's um, it would ma- it would make the rest of this passage nonsensical if that's what it meant. Um, we also have the golden rule. Um, again, a, a, a very well known part of this sermon. Uh, verse 12 says, "So." Uh, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is uh, for this is the law and the prophets. So, I mean, very simple statements, and it's pretty obvious, right? You know, if something is harmful to me, and I don't want people to do it to me, then well, I shouldn't be doing it to other people. And if something's good for me, and I like it when people do it for me, well, those are the types of things I should be doing for other people. Just very straightforward. Um, well, Why do you think that Jesus says that uh, this is the law and the prophets?
3: Any thoughts? Basically summarizing the teachings of the law and the prophets in they're contained within these statements. Yeah, yeah. It's it's basically a summary of
0: the Law of the Prophets. I mean, it's, it's very similar to, you know, the the, uh, the statement elsewhere in the Gospel, you know, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's a summary of the Law. Um, this is very much in that vein. It's like, that's really what the Law is. The Law isn't just like this list of, Odd things you're supposed to do, just that are just arbitrarily chosen. Um, the law of God is intended to be us being good to our neighbor, um, and uh, so Jesus is saying, "It's like if you do this, it, 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 it is the law of the prophets." There's also the the exhortation to enter the kingdom, um, Matthew. Uh, chapter 7 beginning of verse 13 Jesus says enter by the narrow gate uh, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few so why do you think that Jesus gives this exhortation
1: say, specifically speaking to the Jews, where it seems like the general attitude was, I'm a Jew. I'm born of God's people, so I automatically have a pass. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's this very specific statement of uh, it's not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. To attain eternal life, there's—it's it, a very specific path that's not just going to happen. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's that's definitely—I mean—that would have been the prevailing attitude. It's like, well, we're we're God's people.
3: We're just we're we're going to be in His kingdom, right? Uh, um, they see their uh, being in the visible church as being—that's not. Uh huh. Yeah.
0: And it's not. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that I mean there there has to be like real change in the life real heartfelt uh, love and devotion for God um, does that only apply to the Jews of Jesus's day or no it's I mean it's just very much the same thing today right um, many people that they just they think oh yeah we're sure' we're, 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 uh, we're I mean he's like Sometimes you hear people say, well, I'm an American. Of course I'm a Christian. You know, it's, uh, it's, that's not really the way it works. Um, in the same vein, um, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So why does Jesus give this warning? Talked a little bit about you know, people just they kind of just think they're in basically just because of their birth or their kind of situation in life. Um, Does this push this a little
3: farther, maybe? It it does, it's it's on the same uh, line of thinking, but Mm -hmm. it does take it a step further. It's not just being, but you can even be actively Mm -hmm. um, doing certain things, um, those visible acts of righteousness, just like earlier talking about those Mm -hmm. who pray in public and are seen in public Yeah. Um, this is along those same lines but it's still, it's a matter of the heart yeah,
0: yeah, got all these outward shows that, oh well I'm I'm following God, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do Um, but yeah, if it's not if it's not in the heart then it doesn't matter Um, what's the significance
3: of Jesus saying I never knew you Well, in, it, uh, in the verse, it, the people that he's rejecting are using an intimate way of speaking to him, Lord, Lord, by saying it twice. It's it's a, uh, suggesting intimacy, uh-huh. and um, he's saying, I, I, don't, who, I don't know you, right? Exactly. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And it's and he
0: never knew them, right? It's not the case that it's like, well, I knew you, but then. You didn't do good enough, and so then I went ahead and, you know, disassociated myself with, from you. Um, but but really, no, I never knew you, um, which, I mean, perfectly accords with the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, right? When, when Christ calls you out, when he knows you, then he's going to complete that work that he began. Uh, but for these people that make a pretense of belonging to Jesus— uh, but it's not really true. And last day he'll say, "I never knew you. You were you are never one of mine." So, definitely a, a passage to um, to wake us up and, and make us evaluate ourselves. Um, that are we just you know presenting ourselves as being God's people, um, or is it is it really true? Has has God really changed my heart? So leaving the the Sermon on the Mount, obviously that's a huge uh, part of the the ministry of Jesus. Um, Let's talk about some of the other things that happened during this period of time. Um, We'll hop over to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1 here. Uh, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Uh, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick Uh, and at the point of death, uh, who was highly valued by him. Uh, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him uh, elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is uh, the one who built us our synagogue. Uh, And Jesus went with him. Uh, When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So there we see Jesus healing the servant of Centurion. And just to bring out one little thing about this, uh, what what was it that caused Jesus to marvel? I mean this is not the the only some, this is not the only person who came to him asking for a, a miraculous healing, and he provided it, but yes.
2: Is it Gentile with more faith than Jews?
0: Yeah. And, why, and it is because he had more faith. And why? how did he demonstrate that he had more
1: faith than the Jews? He believed that Jesus would fulfill it, or would heal his servant just by saying, his servant was healed. He didn't have to bring him to the sermon. He didn't have to have proof. He believed that as long as you say it it's gonna happen. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's you don't even have to be here. Um, I mean if you you know if you have some notion of a you know of a magician or or a, a healer of some kind, you know, it's like, oh well surely he's gotta be there and do some kind of ritual and stuff like that. Um, but the centurion is looking at it as like, no you've got you got all authority. Um, I know what I know what authority works like. You got all authority. You can just say it, and it's just it's done. Um, he just had a just a, an astoundingly deep understanding of how powerful and how much authority Jesus had. That it's like no, you, if you're if you're really, I mean, I don't know if he fully understood God in the flesh, but at least understanding that he was working with the authority of God it's like well you're not limited by you know being physically here it's just like you just say it it's done um, so truly an amazing thing that he had that that insight and Jesus marveled at it um, another instance uh, just continuing on there verse 11 soon afterward, soon afterward he went to a town called Nain and his disciples uh, and a great crowd went with him, and he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Uh, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched her, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So, again, Jesus is raising the dead here. Uh, Another great miracle. Um, What was the people's reaction, though? It was a little unusual, Perhaps. How did people react when he raised him from the dead?
3: Let me if I remember, which correctly, fear. Yeah, there's
0: fear. Why do you think that was?
3: This is a a, a very powerful demonstration of mm-hmm. his power and authority over life and death. Yeah. Yeah, it's not every day that,
0: like, somebody's going around raising the dead. It's like, wow. I mean, that really, like, this is not an ordinary guy. This is not somebody doing tricks. This is, um, I mean, there may have been a a dawning awareness that's like, wow, like, God is standing before us. I mean, you know, kind of like what we saw last week with Peter when you had the miraculous haul of fish. And Peter's like, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Um... But truly, just a, an amazing display of power, and the people, they're, they're, there's fear there. There's also praising God, right? I mean, there's great prophet among us. God has visited His people. Um, you know, they were they were definitely attributing it to God, and um, very, and they were very much rejoicing uh, that God was uh, was doing these miraculous things in their midst. Um, we've talked about this briefly before but here is the, the proper place where we have uh, John the Baptist uh, making an inquiry uh, beginning in verse 18 uh, the disciples of John reported all these things to him and John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to the Lord saying are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another and by the way this is when, Jesus, or when John is actually in prison and um, continue on, it says, uh, and when the men came to, uh, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people with diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard: the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, why do you think John asked this question?
3: Well, given his circumstances, he could um, he could be experiencing some doubts or some, and also um, it's possible. That even he had some misunderstandings mm-hmm. of what or who the Messiah was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but either I think either one of those two could explain why he would ask mm-hmm. that question.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's he's definitely not in good circumstances. You know, he's he's in prison. Um, and as we saw uh, last week, Jesus basically right after Jesus got right after John got put in prison, Jesus relocated. You know, he's he's gone somewhere else. So almost like you know he's he's afraid of getting arrested too, and you know it's like might have certain expectations about it. it's like well aren't we gonna like kick out the Romans now and reestablish the kingdom like like we had under David, um, and so there's there's some doubts there. Um, now Jesus, he didn't simply answer yes or or no. Obviously no would be the wrong answer, but. Um, But he didn't simply say yes. Why is that? Why do you think he... Why did he give the answer he did?
3: I think um, the two men that were two disciples of John reporting back to John, they're reporting back from their own experience, what they saw with their eyes, what they heard with their ears. Not just, yeah, he says he is, but... We saw his power. We right. saw what he is doing. Yeah, yep, that's exactly right. Yeah,
0: they had saw it. they saw it for themselves. It's like this is and you know and you could point to Old Testament prophecy. It's like this is what the Messiah is supposed to do, and they witnessed themselves that he was doing these things. He was uh, performing these miracles and preaching uh, the good news to the people.
3: Um,
0: and so, like, yeah, have no fear, John. I am who you thought I was. um, And they have this eyewitness testimony that they could could go back and tell John, yep, we we saw it. He was doing these things. Um, After they leave, um, uh, Jesus makes some comments. And we talked about some of them uh, a few weeks back. But uh, beginning in verse 31, he does have a, a little commentary on the generation that they are living in, the people that are encountering John the Baptist and Jesus. And he says, "Now, to what shall I compare the people of this generation? Uh, And what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance, we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon." The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So what's, what's Jesus charging the people with? I mean, this, is, this can be a somewhat cryptic statement. What, what is Jesus saying about, about people in this, in this uh, little statement he makes here?
3: Well, it seems like they, they they one, they have a double standard. They're not going by the same standard. They're not being consistent in how they are judging. But I almost, I also want to say that it's most likely again a condition of their heart that it doesn't matter. They're going to find some fault mm-hmm. and say this is you know con- contradicted by saying well he's got a demon or you're you're a glutton. There's no there's no right answer for that. Right. There's no yeah. Yeah, it is.
0: I mean, that is kind of the case. They, they want to find fault either way. And it's just like John the Baptist comes and he's like all super, you know, ascetic and um, austere and, you know, just very much Mr. Holy. And they're like, oh, my goodness, he's, he's so extreme. He's just got to have a demon. And then Jesus, you know, he's coming and he's, you know, he's eating, he's drinking, he's going to parties and they're like, oh well, he's just he's just a sinner, you know. It's like, you know, John was too outwardly holy, and Jesus is too outwardly, I, I'm not even worldly, I guess, you know. And it's like, it's like, eh, how, we just can't please you guys, you know. There's, doesn't matter what the you know the spokesman of God looks
3: like, you're gonna find fault with him. Yeah, it seems like John was his. The way he represented himself or presented himself was in repentance. So, it was, mm-hmm. you know, sackcloth and dust on, you know, it, mm-hmm. uh, we, and that's what he was preaching: is mm-hmm. you, we must repent. Right. And um, Jesus is the kingdom is here, mm-hmm. and there's celebration or mm-hmm. rejoicing in that sense. So right. Yeah, there's there's definitely very much strong
0: reasons why John yeah. the Baptist and Jesus had different presentations. But, but yeah. But I think I think Jesus' criticism is like it doesn't matter what the presentation is; you're going to reject it. So, um, on to parables. Parables are a big part of uh, the ministry of, and teaching of Jesus, and we're not going to like try to go through the parables. Uh, that would that would just take too long. But I do want to just look at kind of the concept here. Um, So Matthew chapter 13, uh, beginning in in verse one, uh, it says that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered uh, about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying a sower went out to sow and I'll stop there. I'm sure you guys all are all familiar with that parable, but he, you know, he tells this parable and he tells, tells several other parables. Uh, jumping down to verse 34, it says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And then jumping back up to verse 10, there's a there's an interesting little um, discussion here. Um, Jesus is teaching in parables and starting in verse 10, then the disciples came to him and uh, came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given for the one who has more will be given and to him uh, and, and he will have an abundance, but uh, from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, their case, uh, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, "You will indeed hear, but never understand; you will indeed see, but never perceive." For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have uh, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, uh, Jesus' parables are very popular. People like to uh, like to talk about them a lot. Um, and there's I think some some prevailing ideas about why Jesus spoke in parables that often don't take this passage into account. So does this does this square with common notions of why Jesus spoke in parables? What do you think? Well, what so are some common notions? As I say, some people will say, you know, and they'll they'll talk about this with preachers. You know, mm-hmm. Preachers today need to be. More like Jesus, and use everyday illustrations because mm-hmm. that helps people to understand better, mm-hmm. you know, his teaching and things like that. But yeah, <laughs> this one sort of contradicts that, uh huh, right? Yeah, it's it doesn't, the parables don't necessarily help understand I mean you look at what happened with the parables and if you're familiar with the story like every every time that the disciples are like hey Jesus could you explain that one to us we didn't, we didn't know what you were saying um, and I mean but they you know there is there is a truth to it though that like the parables do help people understand if they have the the explanation um, so I mean I, I do think there is a truth to that you don't want to say it's just to hide the truth but if you if you have the parable and you have an explanation you have here's here's what the different things in the parable represent and um, then you can they they are really um, illustrative of the point and so they can be very helpful um,
3: I think But we that when we don't have because we read it we have the answer yes yeah, so exactly so like right. well of course that's what it means yeah. But for them, it's like, what's he talking about? Right. Sowing seeds and then, right. you know, it just yeah, it just uh, I can imagine it would, they would be baffled until they got right. that answer key, right. so to speak. Yeah, yeah, they're probably hearing
0: that it's like, okay, yeah, it, okay, I'm familiar with planting, but yeah. I, I don't. Why is he saying this? Do <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, but it's I mean. It's, I, I, that's something that, that people, I think, often misunderstand, is that they often think that Jesus was just, like, to the crowds at large, was giving the, them these great illustrations that they were understanding them. And the reality is, is, like, he was telling the people these things, and they just didn't get it. And it was only when he would go and speak privately with his disciples that he would provide this explanation and tell them, look, this is what this is talking about so that they would have the, the understanding. Um, one last thing before we close. Um, there's a, a number of miraculous things that he does that are uh, you know, very powerful and demonstrate who Jesus is, and just to look briefly at one of them. Um, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, uh, it says, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd... He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So what was the disciples' reaction to Jesus calming the storm? Fear. Fear, yeah. Yeah, this is, I mean... I mean, you know, we've seen this before, you know, where it's like people are afraid when they see Jesus do something amazing. But it's like when you think about it, it's like, you know, there there are charlatans who can make it look like they're healing people. And all, you know, I mean, obviously, like if somebody is blind and suddenly they can see, that's that's pretty hard to, you know, to say, oh, no, that's not the case. Or it's like there's somebody who was dead and they were raised to life. I mean, you might say, oh, maybe, you know, maybe they're just unconscious. Maybe they were. But when you're in the middle of this big storm and he just stands up and says, peace, be still. And it just whew, it's like I could just imagine that would be just shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I wonder, if you know, maybe the centurion, if he was there, he'd say, oh, well, yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> of course, Cause he, cause he, he seemed to have a grasp of, of the authority of Jesus. But uh, but, yeah, the disciples were just amazed And they're asking the question, who is this? Um, It's interesting, uh, you know, Mark, I think, in particular, um, that gospel really, like, pushes that question on the reader of the gospel, is who is Jesus? And just keeps, like, putting things in your face and saying, okay, who is Jesus? Um, And I think this is just a a part of that. But, but, I mean, that's obviously something that we all have to answer, is, like, who is Jesus? Um, Is he... Is he who he claimed to be? Um, Can he save us? Um, And uh, so hopefully, um, as we've continued, this has given us a a continued picture of of who Jesus is and uh, greater appreciation for his great work in saving us. uh, let's, uh, Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father. Uh, God, we just wish we just thank you for the the richness and the depth of the gospel accounts of Jesus and uh, and just God, just the humanity that we see in the um, the people that interact with him and see what he does and their their amazement, their confusion. Um,
2: God, it's just um,
0: it's it's as close as we can imagine to actually being there and seeing. Uh, Jesus as he walked this earth and God I just pray that that these things would uh, continue to be things that we that we think about that we meditate on that uh, as we uh, consider uh, even over the next two weeks the the, the great work that uh, you accomplished uh, in the crucifixion the resurrection the uh, God, bringing about our redemption. God, I just pray that we would just truly meditate on these things, that our love for you would grow, um, and that our obedience would also grow.
2: God, just that uh, you would continue to be glorified in your church. pray in Christ's name. Amen.